all aboard mind the gap you're listening to film grays going loco special edition i'm emmett i'm sam we're from the band phil graves and today we've got a very special guest our train driver friend hi i'm darrell hopefully i'm gonna bring uh, a bit of technical uh, knowledge um <laughs> to uh to this uh, railway discussion keep it on the rails and uh get you there on time yes absolutely we're gonna run through the whole gamut from the very birth of cinema up to the present day we're gonna talk about buster keaton we're gonna talk about john voigt we're talk about a lot of good stuff and of course we're gonna wrap it up with a bit of dental washington legends uh bit of three and out discussion a little bit a little bit <laughs> keep it moderate yeah all aboard don't miss your stop hold tight trains the operation of trains is a pretty big theme important to cinema from the very start of its history isn't it guys uh yeah absolutely i guess like as a technology it was so vital to like late I mean, 19th century I, I, I experience it, yeah I, I think it kind of uh you know goes in line of you've got this uh, brand new medium of entertainment of moving pictures and you know that that really aligns with uh, a brand new form of moving transport you know they're both just these uh forces of you know, new wave futuristic technology. So I can I can definitely see the appeal of uh, you know jamming them together for sure. And I guess all post industrial revolution stuff developing this. I mean, it's an urban legend to say this was the first film ever made, even though I incorrectly said that on the wrong podcast. I definitely knew it was the workers leaving the factory. Sorry to all cinema historians out there, but <laughs> the Lumiere brothers, one of their first films, is the arrival of. The train at La Gare de Chotat. 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 Yeah, they also did Leaving Jerusalem. Similarly, like a really short film, like less than a minute, retains like serious anthropological value, architectural history as well, like seeing the stuff which mm. no doubt is <laughs> completely different now. The, I mean, the arrival of the train at the station, describe it, it's about two or three shots. You get closer and closer as the train pulls in, then you see it sort of come in on the left of the frame or whatever, but as if it's coming towards you. So they must, they just put the camera on a platform. Mm. And there's sort of urban legends associated with this. I believe you watched footage of someone watching this film. Oh yeah, so there's a film that responds to, I guess it's responding to this urban legend because it's a, a film called The Countryman and the Cinematograph by this British director, Robert. Paul, like R.W. Paul, R.W. Yeah. Paul, yeah, like one of the RuPaul, one of the Ru earliest, <laughs> one of the earliest uh, film filmmakers in in Britain, you know, and um, it's like a shot of like a guy next to a projection, mm -hmm. and he's like responding to what's going on, and he has the train coming towards him, and he's like throwing his arms up and like running away. He's 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 the original train spotter, um, and that was like ninety nine or something. Right, like okay, yeah. like he was just like an electrician or like a. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we're going to move on to Edison next, his production company, and he in America, I guess, like started using the cinematograph. I mean, he had all his own different patents and stuff that he worked on in his workshop. Did, didn't you? Didn't you tell me uh, all all his patents? Um, sent the film industry to Hollywood, basically. Basically, basically yeah. Um, the Edison loop of how, like, film goes into a projector. Mm. Um, he patented that, and he was based in, like, New Jersey or, like, Pennsylvania or something on the on the East Coast. So all these other people who wanted to start making film were like, all right, 
let's go as far and far away from that as possible so his lawyers can't get to us. And so they went to Hollywood and started making films in California. But at the same time, you've got other people trying to replicate this technology of the moving picture to work around like patent law yeah. or... I don't know what the situation was in France and England in relation to American. Oh, I'm just talking about America. And the but um, these guys and the Lumia brothers as well. What technology were they using? Edison technology, or did they like create their own? They had it before. Like, yeah. I'm just talking in America. Yeah, like, for sure, for sure. People were trying to not um, get sued. But Edison's production company made one of the most classic silent films, um, one of the first sort of narrative films, not fictional, but infamous film The Great Train Robbery it was actually directed by Edwin S. Porter but it was made for Edison Films in his studios rather simple it's about 10 minutes long it's about a gang hold up the train stop the train they get on the train this is all edited together you know mm, yeah that's such an important thing because at, at this point so many of these films had like a almost documentary either a documentary quality where they're just like showing a clip of something or they're showing a fictional vignette but there's no the idea of like all these different cuts like one of the things was you had these like phantom rides which were like the, the former like a static thing going a camera on a train um and you're going on the train ride um and then there was these like two films right in 1899 um <laughs> that do the exact same thing of like a phantom ride and then it cuts to um like what's going on in the tunnel um and then you cut back but I guess it's a point where there were no like set conventions about how to edit films and they were right. all like learning from each other and copying each other um, and working towards like narrative interested. editing. It's interesting how like associative like editing was used so much at the start of the film for that and then that's sort of considered to be a more wild thing as opposed to like sequential narrative editing which people develop to tell stories. Mm. Um, and it's also interesting how I guess rail was used at the start for production and like filmmaking, you know, even like dollies and moving cameras, they were all mm. put on rails, not necessarily on trains. But yeah, the great train robbery, it ends with a really famous shot of someone shooting the camera directly, which was that used in like Goodfellas or something like that. Very well, famous. yeah, the, yeah the, the whole film is, is rather in, intensely uh, violent. I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you seeing people uh actually getting stabbed getting mm. thrown off uh thrown off a train and stuff like that it, it it established a narrative which has been seen uh you know within a wider scale in so many other different train um like films about trains like 310 to yuma i mean anyone who's played red dead redemption 2 uh you're basically playing that mission within about the first uh 25 30 minutes of the game um the first and... sequence of the assassination of jesse james by the coward Robert yeah. Ford is also essentially based off that with the camera angles and the yeah. So I think uh, it is. It, it's it's only a, a little uh, uh, ten ten minutes of film, but it's um, it really established a popular narrative that you know you keep seeing in a lot of other places. Mm. Um, it wasn't one of these old west cowboy films that were actually like produced by actual old cowboys who retired and then became like consultants and wrote scripts in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. This was actually before that. This was kind of more abstract. I don't know what Thomas Edison knows about 
Yeah. But this was like living history, you know, this would have been only, only like 20 years before or whatever. This is in, this is fully in the Wild West time. There's like, mm, this mm. is the time of like Jesse, Frank and Jesse James. And yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was the time when, uh, yeah, people were, uh, you know, trying to stop and hijack that, uh, that fucking gold train. Yeah. <laughs> they were still building the railroads, I'm sure, at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the start of the, the railroad explosion, um, in the U.S., which, uh, unfortunately, uh, died around the time of, uh, or people, people got a lot less excited about it around the 1920s, um, and that's when you saw stuff shutting down, but, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was so big, though, and then, to the 19th century imagination at large, um, and especially as you man talking about, like in terms of outward expansion and settlement and like bringing, yeah, exactly. Um, I was <laughs> I was reading about this crazy event that happened in uh, 1896. It was the second such event staged by the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad Company, whereby they staged these demolitions of um old stock um, wow so just old old like locomotives and that that they were they just set them of. towards each other charged people <laughs> to come in and you know made better money and then and so the first event was like very successful and then they did another one and at like a temporary town called crush in texas did they um, did they actually build this this town as a as a as, as a full event to come and see two trains smash into each other demolition yeah. derby style yeah because it's like the fucking wild west you know it's actually crazy <laughs> I see that. um yeah and well those that did at crush, crush. it's called known as the great <laughs> crash at crush <laughs> yeah uh the trains like blew up which they weren't anticipating um and loads of people were injured by shrapnel right right so just like steam valves got overloaded or whatever and forced the I, whole yeah. thing to just and the engineers before were like this is a great idea <laughs> <laughs> um yeah if the first one went so well yeah That's interesting. Um, but it's um, just like a tourist attract or like a a popular attraction mm. you know? Well, think it's if like, the second one had gone as well as the first one, we could still have trained demolition derbies today and go see some northern pacers smash into each other. That'd be that would be a great Sunday out, you know. Um, make indie tracks way more. <laughs> <laughs> they have a, they have a can crush at indie tracks where you everyone just puts all their beer cans like on the floor in this one bit and then they roll. This old ass steam engine, like a steam roller, and they just roll it over all the cars. Well, yeah, because they they were using steam for for all sorts of vehicles, like like uh, you know they had steam trucks up until uh, the nineteen thirties and stuff. Any any anything that was big, whether it was on track or not, like steam diggers, stuff like that. I, I, I believe North Korea um, was uh, found to be running. Um, uh, not not uh, not coal, but wood burning trucks recently, which basically using uh, steam technology. I mean, it's just like the industrial revolution. Like, uh, yeah. if you believe in the industrial revolution as like a phenomenon, then I guess you'd have to accept that it happens at different times. 
um, across different like <laughs> yeah, that um, is, places. Yeah, that is and, true, but know, the, the 1930s revolution. wasn't that long ago, you know, in terms of like our history of like, you know, chimneys and... Yeah, of course, but we didn't have the nuclear revolution going on at, at, at the same time as our industrial revolution but you're 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 right wow um <laughs> are there any other before we move on to a film explicitly set on a steam train where wood burning is one of the main things that happens in the film are there any more early silent shorts that document the development of trains yeah i just i'd say if anyone's interested in seeing any of this material the bfi player has a free catalog of fiction and non-fiction shorts that are um, available. You don't need to like sign up or anything to watch them. Mm. So um, you can see like um, some of these Lumiere Brothers films, both versions of uh, The Kiss in the Tunnel, and yeah, loads of like Phantom Ride films. Just put train in the yeah stuff. train yeah, and World of uh, World of Wonder. <laughs> So now we're going to move on to talking about one of the most astonishing, brilliant train films ever. It also happened to end the career of the director and star of it. And it was the most expensive film ever made at the time. It is from 1926, the legendary Buster Keaton's The General. It's a film where he plays a engine driver called Johnny Gray uh, at the time of the Civil War, torn between his two great loves of... Uh, a woman and his train, the eponymous general, which is hijacked by the Yankees with his girlfriend on it. He is not in the army because his job is too important, but the girl says she doesn't want to see him until he's in uniform. So she's getting out of town, she's on this train, that he's driving. And then these damn mustachioed union spies, operatives, come and steal the train. So he's got to go get it back. So he follows them across the states of Georgia and Tennessee on the railroad to get that damn train back. And this is uh, all based on the Andrews Raid, uh, or the Great Loco Chase of 1862, where a bunch of those goddamn Yankees did actually make it down uh, to so somewhere in current Atlanta, Georgia. Marietta, Marietta Georgia. Marietta, Georgia, yeah. Um, and they, they stole a train called the General, which uh, uh, Buster Keaton got permission to use for the actual film. The permission was later rescinded when uh, the railroad company found out that it was uh, intended to be a comedy. They said they couldn't... Uh, couldn't have the general for uh for you know a laugh a minute uh i mean this is one of the most dramatic films you will see in your entire life it's, true. it's yeah it's uh <laughs> yeah it doesn't doesn't conform to modern comedy but um yeah so so it all actually happened um and uh they were just trying to drive up to chattanooga causing as much wreckage um, as possible to the uh, Confederate supply lines and all that. That is a thing, because you see them just cutting down trees, throwing stuff on the tracks, stopping the train and like ripping up tracks bare. But everything they do, 
one man, Buster Keaton, he can do, undo everything, you know. The film has a really mad structure, takes place sort of in reverse for the second half, right? Spoiler alert, he gets the train back and then they're chasing him on the opposite train, on the train that he was on there. And the whole film, all the like big set pieces of him going there, like happen in reverse, I guess. I mean, it's an extremely kinetic film throughout the whole thing. It really propels the plot, the motion following the track, like chugging along. Yeah, it literally goes from like right to left and then left to right. I should have said that. It has got the best train stunts of any movie of all time. And uh, I mean, what's really impressive is, uh, you know, there's there's no CGI on this. Um, and uh, Buster Keaton, you know, he's doing stuff where uh, he's he's trying to get his train moving, trying to catch up and stuff, so he's got the throttle up to max, and you see him jump out the cab, chuck sand down onto the track to get the train moving, and of course, modern trains, um, they've got a big vat that uh, sprays it onto the track when, you know, it's wet, or you've got your, your terrible leaf fall, which obviously shuts everything down for months so just not not only are all the train stunts uh so impressive um they're all done for real they they all demonstrate uh buster keaton's prowess as i mean probably one of the the greatest train drivers of all time i mean he he's on the level of casey jones the stuff that he's able to do with this locomotive is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, How do you and... think he learned? Like, do you think he had a crash course in? I, I, I think, I think he must have. I think it's so that... technical. Yeah. He Doing he, all this shit. like it's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. you maybe maybe you know there's there's an engineer you know hiding out of shot or something. But um, I don't know, man. You see it, him like it, it, it really looks like he's he's working hard. It, it looks like it's it's Buster so, like, in control lies, of that machine, like, jumping he's around. It's like he's been doing it his whole life. Yeah, yeah and I mean, the, the, those 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 trains back then, they all had a, a personality of their own. Like, um, you know, a driver stayed with his train for, you know, years on end, uh, would be super upset if he had to get a new one. So it had its own personality. It's, it's not something that he could have just gotten, you know, an afternoon crash course in terms of here's the throttle, here's the brake. Here's the computer that actually drives between the stations. Um, you know, he's he's genuinely uh, one of the greatest drivers I've I've ever seen. Um, so he he should, he should really get props for that. You know, he doesn't. He's he's not just a silent film actor. Um, he's also a great train driver uh, <laughs> and a great director. You know, he did this. I mean, you see this man literally chopping up one part of his train, then like taking that wood to the burning bit and then like running back and firing the cannon. Yeah, Come he's on. he's 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 doing the work of about um you know a crew a, a crew of about you know three or four people all the while chasing down these goddamn Yankees, you know? It's uh it's it's, it's really labor intensive. I mean, my my favorite part I think is when, you know, he's he's literally acting as a coupling device. Um he's 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 got his arms on the loco and his foot is just uh 
jammed into the uh, jammed into the coupler, into the connector, trying not to lose the back of his train. And for that to be done in real time with no special effects, with um, I mean, you you guys know a lot more about the camera equipment they they would have is is just insane to me to get that kind of uh shot in a modern film would surely take you know millions to do well it just um, wouldn't happen well, because of like life insurance policies yeah how many times could people have died in the making of this film it's like um the qatar world cup or something right. <laughs> yeah like, yeah it just yeah, looks the, so perilous but the mo- person most in danger is the director star himself you know he's putting himself out there for real he's yeah, doing all this crazy around. it's crazy and people didn't appreciate it you know they didn't think i mean fair enough they didn't think it was funny or they thought like the civil war is too serious a subject i guess it was in some people's Touch- living and, i mean uh, it, yeah it is it is quite controversial that you know he's uh on the uh confederate side but i've I, like i don't i don't think there's any political um angle there other than historical accuracy because it's a true story and uh he said people just wouldn't get behind the film if it was on the other side i guess because it's such a big underdog story or whatever you know who won the war there is a really funny line at the start when he's he's not allowed to join the army because his job's too important he's like okay but if you lose the war don't come crying to me or something. <laughs> and then following that just one of the most beautiful shots where he's sitting really sad and the girl is like I don't want to see you until you're in uniform and he's just sitting and his train just rolls away and he's like and 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 he he gets out there and you know in his in his role as this uh you know brilliant train driver he he does and he does so much more than he could have as a soldier he he doesn't win the war thank god but you know <laughs> he saves the general and that that was that was my investment in the film you know like um i i, I want to see this driver get uh you know both the loves of his his life back and i think that's the that's the happy ending that we can take away from it mm. and then uh, the union victory is an even happier ending that yeah, you don't have to put in the film. <laughs> it's truly insane, I feel. It didn't, it wasn't a success at the time, but I think its classic status has become very, very well established. I mean, when when, when you say it wasn't a success, it was the like financial failure of the movie. What, no, uh, people thought it was shit. What, pe- pe- what, people just thought it was critically a terrible yeah, film? Yeah, people didn't like it. It flopped. It, was, it wasn't until like 20 years later upon a reissue... Um, in his later life when he wasn't allowed to direct films anymore he was sort of taking his old films around quite a lot and then started getting shown on tv a lot wow that kind of story but i mean it is just staggering i guess it's why it wouldn't be topped for at least 60 years in terms of train epic train shit going on um and what until runaway train i mean it's literally never been topped (laughs) (laughs) no 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 the only thing that comes close to it in terms of you know seeing a train operationally do cool stuff would be uh denzel washington's unstoppable but you know that's not even because first of all way cooler stuff happens in the general um you know the stuff that he's doing with cannons lining it up and things like that that bit um it's it's yeah it's such a demonstration of train driving skill and camera skill at the same time and unstoppable has you know some visually cool stuff but you know it's cgi um and it's just not as 
it's not as good as the general. The tactility of train driving, though, has obviously been reduced in line with technological change. And, like, now, like, it's obviously so different. Yeah. I mean, earlier, like, off mic, you invoked The Incredibles 2 um, and how the train scene in that is, like, the driver gets hacked or, like, the computer gets hacked. And, like, yeah, that's, like, yeah, so a did. different sort of drama, like, completely yeah. stripped of any, like, human tactility. Well, well, The Incredibles 2 does have a visual train driver on screen. You know, I really, I really don't think uh, he needs to be there because essentially what is happening is uh, the, the train's getting hacked and putting on to maximum speed, which is an outside possibility with... Uh, driverless digital uh, train technology that comes in where things can be controlled remotely because, you know, it, and anything can be hacked in the end. Listen to this man, he's saying some real shit. Uh, all of this is at stake and more. Yeah, that's, yeah that, that, that's what I'm saying. You need to keep these drivers um, on trains and uh, keep this hardwired technology in there so that, uh, you know, train drivers can be saving the day general style instead of... Uh, Seen, um, waiting for the Incredibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just waiting for an Incredibles <laughs> uh, situation to happen on the DLR. You know, it's uh, it's real. <laughs> Support your train drivers. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. A couple more things on the general. I feel there's that shot that was the the most offensive shot where they destroyed a whole bridge and drove that other train into the river, and then people could visit that. It was in Oregon, and people could just visit that scene for like twenty years. The disaster because they they couldn't. Wow. It cost like half a million dollars at the time, which probably like, I don't know, adjusted for inflation, an insane amount of money. Yeah. There's that bit. There's a, oh, my favorite Keaton train bit is not actually in this film. Wow. It's in a film called The Goat. Very appropriate title. Um, it's a short. It's only about 20 minutes. I think it's on YouTube. You should go watch that. But there's a shot. Maybe we'll link it or something where the camera is at the very end of a train track and Buster Keaton's sitting on the cow catcher and the train is like coming straight towards you. Not even like where it's at an angle on the the Lumiere one that's literally coming straight towards you and the train driver, I don't know who it is, stops, manages to stop, so it's coming from like a mile away and Buster's just sitting there and then he's like sitting right in front of you. Like it's crazy. That is crazy. It's crazy. Wow. The guy I mean it's it's probably the same driver who trained up Buster for the general. Uh, yeah, I've not seen it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check out that best train stunt ever. It is insane. I mean yeah the train as a stunt, as an action film, it's obviously incredibly influential. I think it's better to regard it as an action film than a comedy, because it's not really that ha-ha funny. No, but I guess in terms of, like, a physical comedy, like, slapstick tradition, if that is, like, thought, that sort of vaudevillian mm -hmm. conduct is thought of as, like, intrinsically funny, then maybe the humour is there. But oh, you wouldn't you call it, like, an action comedy where, like, there is, like... <laughs> there are no, like, pratfalls or anything... No, you know, no, it's no. like it's like a Jackie it's Chan. high drama, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean the the sort of um, Buster Keaton's character uh, is he's you, you know you wouldn't call him an an antihero, but um, you would consider him you know this uh, sort of geeky weedy guy who uh, you that no one expects to save the day, and it's sort of. Um, Every every success that he has, you know, he he looks like he he himself can't believe uh, that you know he he actually pulled it off, and it's uh, it's almost like a, a a reverse comedy of errors, you know, like everything's just about to go wrong, and through uh, you, some ridiculous spell of luck, 
it actually goes right and it keeps going and he gets another chance. Um, yeah, the cameraman, which I think he made just before this, is very similar to, to that in terms of he's just like a total loser mm. who triumphs over society slash the Yankees. Yeah, I, I like uh, I feel like he does himself up at, at the beginning, like makeup wise, in almost like um, a feminine way, not like too outwardly, but you know he is he is visibly wearing makeup, extremely and, uh, pale. Yeah, I, I I don't think that he looks you know like your your hard man hero of the of the time. Um, your your no, flat no, capped. Uh, he's no Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <for> sure. <laughs> it's all just stage makeup, though. I mean, it's just to make his, uh, you know, cheekbones pop or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And his his cheekbones are certainly popping. It's. Uh... <laughs> I love him so much. Actually, he's such a G. The general. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. Either screening somewhere or just watch it on YouTube. But if you do watch it on YouTube. Like my DVD, which I believe was playing at the wrong speed. Adjust the speed. Put it on silent speed. Don't project it at normal things, otherwise it looks a bit weird. I mean, you get used to the rhythm because, I mean, at any speed it works. Like uh, certain kinds of tunes. Yeah, it's a big thing, you know. It's, in the, it's the best film that's been in the public domain since the 50s. Fact. You're still listening to Film Grays, this Going Loco special edition. Yeah. Uh, another film worth mentioning from about 10 years later is one of my favourite filmmakers, Jean Renoir, adaptation of Emile Zola's La Bête Humaine, which is also about a train driver who's driven to uh, emotional extremes because of both his engine inside his heart and his engine that he drives along train tracks. Um, it's worth mentioning just for amazing performance from Jean Gabin, as always. The film's shot by Kurt Courant, uh, and it's just breathtaking. As opposed to the general, it's like super kinetic and like pretty fast editing for the time, I think. You know, the train's going a lot faster. I guess this is in like set in early 1900 or whatever, if it's from the Zola thing. And, you know, the trains are a lot faster. It's a lot more intense. Obviously, the general is super intense, but this is also pretty grim and dark, Thriller, sad story, murder and betrayal. Really, really worth watching though. That's the bait human, the human beast. Shout out Jean Renoir. Hope to revisit your films more on this podcast because he's really the fucking goat. Another very dark film from the period is uh, the horror film uh, Nightmare from 1936, uh, which is a terrifying um, journey through. Nah, it's about uh, the post office, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's like a propaganda film. Right? Yeah, it was, uh, so, in uh, 1927, uh, the, uh, basically, the postal trade unions um, were uh, uh, seriously, like, legislated, their, cap their power was cut down a lot, um, and the post office sort of uh, budgeted to uh, make this film that sort of uh, was supposed to demonstrate the efficiency of uh, how the post was run and, uh, you know, make it really seem like a, a modern 
up-to-date um, operation. Um, yeah, so it, uh, it literally just uh, follows the on-train uh, post office service, uh, which ran from 1863, I think, to 2004, between uh, Houston and Glasgow. Every night. Every night, um, and it was just an express mail service. They'd pick up and drop off uh, letters en route. Oh, it'll... the way they do this is crazy. The procedure or the operation that they show is so slick. The way they have like nets that grab these bags as the trains like roaring past it—it's actually crazy to see. Yeah, the uh, they they got that shot as well. Uh, the cameraman or assistant director, I think, uh, his name was Foul. Um, he leant out of the train with the camera uh, right in front of the uh, the mailbag arm while uh, two of his assistants held his legs, and that's how they got the shot of the uh, the mailbag uh, being uh, let out of the train into the net and uh, taken off to be delivered. It's so mad. I mean, it's a super like modernist film, right? The editing is crazy. A lot of the cinematography. Who directed it? It was produced and directed by two guys. I'd, I don't know, Henry Watt and Basil Wright were their names. Henry Watt and Mr. Fowl, whose style was not foul. Features a poem read by W.H. Auden, music by... Uh, Benjamin Britten, yeah. That's a really cool sequence, actually. It feels like a modern ad, that, that part. Spoiler alert, the train makes it to Glasgow on time. <laughs> it's a thrilling film, but it's not like... The train is not at stake. Yeah, it's just about showing these poster workers like doing their thing in an extremely efficient way. Yeah, and you've got you've got sort of um control room scenes where you know they're saying uh, postal trains coming through in 3 minutes. Can you hold it? Yes, oh, yeah, I think we can hold it. Intelligible <laughs> a lot of the time. It does seem pretty antiquated the processes they're showing. Obviously it seems so alien, but it's also so like at the time like up to date and, and like rational or whatever, but I don't know, it's just a whole other world. The way they're talking as well, as I said, it's like, I, I, yeah, it's really think, hard um, to understand. I, yeah, I, I definitely don't think that the dialogue that they're using is really uh, naturalistic for um, uh, how, how the industry would actually operate. Apparently the dialogue was rewritten a few times to try to make it more colloquial. Um, what? And so I don't, I don't know what kind of script they started with, but they did have to rewrite it to try to make it a little bit more down to earth and a better reflection of, um, you know, the, the people who were uh, actually doing this job. Um, I guess it started out as a bit of union bashing or whatever, though, you know, so they got a panda. <laughs> yeah. Got a panda somewhere. Really worth watching Nightmare. Yeah, this is on YouTube. It's 25 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's more based on, uh, you know, post office. It's where, or, I mean, it's as much about uh, how your mail gets sorted as... Uh, how these trains are run at the time um but um i think it's just like a really sort of interesting factual piece if if you are interested in uh those kinds of uh industries not to mention there is a whole story behind it which emmett kindly spoiled for you the the mail gets to glasgow and it gets there <laughs> on time um but still definitely worth a watch
you're still listening to Film Greys, the next film we're going to talk about is directed by the co-writer of Andre Rublev, one of the best films of all time. Maybe not for its dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Andre Konchalovsky. He also made Tango and Cash. A man who, a Russian man, who brought his uh, trade to Hollywood and, you know, showed him how it's done. In the Yeltsin era. Yeah. This is a 1985 runaway train as the film at hand. It stars John Voight and... Is it Eric Roberts? Eric Roberts, yeah. Yeah. I mean, two timeless performances. They play play a pair of convicts who escape a maximum security prison in Alaska. And these outdoor shots are really cool, actually. That real Hoth shit, you know? Yeah, they've got some great shots of helicopters going through mountain valleys and and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I guess a film with a lot of promise going into it. A story by Akira Kurosawa, one of the most important filmmakers of all time, Legend. basically. I wonder what it would have been like if he'd made it. It's funny, he wanted to make... This was going to be the first film he made in America. Mm. So maybe it would have been quite like this, you know, with like a really bait 80s soundtrack, a terrible cinematic sensibility, and poor direction of the actors or poor acting. Take your pick. Both. Yeah. Um, should we, one of you can do the rest of the plot, I guess. They get on the train and that's... that's well, that's uh, what I was hoping Well, that... <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so they, they break out... It's of, about half uh, an hour in, I think, that they get on the... Yeah, yeah, they manage to, to break out of the prison. I think it's... it's a, is it a classic sewage pipe scenario? Yeah. Just like The Grand Illusion by Renoir. So they make it as far as a uh, train yard and a few trains going in uh, different directions and Manny or, or John Voigt uh, decides that uh, I want that one and that's the one that they're having. And it's a pretty cool formation. I mean, it does change um, from two or three locomotives. So that's a bit of a goof there. As the film goes on. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of any other film that has more scenes which take place in a train cab and the angles they use don't show any of the equipment any of the speedometers i counted i could find one frame where i could visibly recognize uh you know a red brake handle and you've got a good 40 to 60 percent of this movie taking place in a train cab where all you can see is you know a chipped white background and you really really don't get a feel of the space you feel like you're in an enclosed space but it could just as easily be, you know, a, a metal porter cabin as it could be a train cab. And they just missed a lot of opportunities to demonstrate the space that they were working in and, and where this movie was taking place. I was really upset about that. Word. I mean, the break, the violation of the 180 degree rule, the amount of times they do that in this film is staggering. But whatever, maybe he is a visionary. I couldn't tell where in the train they were for like, yeah. the whole film until it becomes like incredibly significant to the plot. The second unit stuff was good though. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> like the external shots were way more artful. Mm. What was your sort of reading of the feel of the film? Like it's a philosophical it's, action film. Yeah, it's, that's what it's indexed as, I guess, which is insane. John Voigt just plays his character in the pulpiest, most comic book way. Oh, awful um, man! <laughs> it's deeply unphilosophical, extremely hammy. Yeah. There's one scene like halfway through where it's clearly like the Oscar scene or whatever. I can't even remember what he's talking about, but he's just talking shit basically. Yeah, and Eric oh, Roberts' and like reaction it. shots are just like disjointed and bemused looking. Well, I mean the the, the character <laughs> so relationship. Bad. 
between <laughs> what so Manny and his his best mate prisoner is his paedophile no, no, accomplice. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah accomplice. they're not even meant to be friends. Like, oh yeah, the younger yeah, one is yeah, like it, meant to have like. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they're they're kind of beefing, but Eric Roberts' performance is they, terrible. They, they just take every difficult situation and make it that much more difficult. The 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 whole bit where he's uh, he's trying to climb over the flat nose of the EMD locomotive, he could have done that with a bit of Manny's help, but now nah, instead uh, they have a smash up in the cab. Should we talk about like the actual sort of mechanics of the film? Um, because the it is a as the name suggests, it's a runaway train. Mm. Um, so How does it the even brake happen? like falls off or something at the beginning, and then and so the uh, other guy has a heart attack. Yeah, the engineer is out. The, a lot of the film, or like you know, a quarter of the film or whatever, is like cut away to like the control room. Yeah, um, yeah, it, and. Yeah, them like in 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 terms of the idea of is it like do do you want to talk about like the train actually running away like how does that happen yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay well because there's a bit like where they're like oh there's a bridge coming up and it can only take fifty miles an hour yeah that train's going at ninety and the maximum <laughs> speed of the locos they were using was only seventy miles an hour so yeah it would be over the limit. Basically, like, you know, in, in these locos, there are safety systems, there are dead man switches and stuff which uh, should shut off if a driver becomes incapacitated. But um, even nowadays on some railways and definitely in the 80s and rural areas, these would be isolated all the time. You know, the safety systems would exist, but there would be a switch on the back of the cab that you could flip so you didn't have to hold the dead man's pedal down the whole time. So it's actually, it's a pretty reasonable concept that this driver would have, you know, isolated various safety systems, um, had a heart attack with the throttle fully open. Why he would have chosen to leave the train and clutch his heart while falling off instead of using his last moments to use the emergency brake and die on the controls, I'm, I'm not sure, but... That's what you would have done. That's what, that's what I would have done. <laughs> the first um, female character who isn't a ditzy secretary is introduced... She's Maybe literally the second half, female just character. Just over halfway through... Um, and then she brings a bit of agency to the situation on the train. Rebecca Whoa. de Mornay, her of the famous Carl Pilkington, Clive Warren for A Love of Two Brains podcast. Do you remember that? No, no. Oh, it's it. worth looking up. People who are listening who know what I'm talking about. Clive Warren, Rebecca de Mornay. It could have been a great film. She plays like a... A conductor, basically, uh, in in the 80s and still today, freight trains had to have a driver and a conductor. The conductor sits next to the driver, blows the horn, helps do, uh, like, car formations in the yard and stuff, and is basically there to keep the driver awake. So what's unrealistic is she's having a nap, and yeah, she'd be having a nap, but she would be having a nap in the leading loco. She would be with the driver if she wasn't, like, sitting next to him, uh, just, you know, keeping an eye on things. Um, so I have no idea why she's in the... Uh, I think she starts in the middle locomotive yeah. instead of the front one. Let's not think too deeply yeah. about it, because, I mean... It's important. Yeah. yeah. It just, I think it just shows that it's, like, sort of 
they didn't Trivial think about it. to them. <clears throat> We're thinking yeah. about it more than they did. Yeah, of um, course. Mm, yeah, they were just like, oh, yeah. we need like someone else on the train who's not like... Well, it was, it, you know, it was the introduction maybe knows something of, <laughs> of that character that for me uh, just made the film lose its uh, operational like uh, realisticness. Once she comes on, you don't, you, you don't have, a, you know, I, I, I don't know how these trains work, but you don't have a fully trained conductor on a train that can't go back to the engine room, get the engine slowing down, work it in reverse, something like that, you know? Like, they do they do give these reasons, but she's just exceptionally inept for a fully qualified railroad employee. It's because um, she's a woman, isn't it? Yeah, it in the logic of the film, what, yeah, like, she's... Yeah, that's, um, that, that's the exact honestly, there's a lot the of... Control room. That's what the screenplay yeah, has to There's say. a lot of um, casual misogyny in this film. Obviously. Earlier in the film, when the escape is taking place, in a really quite really problematic scene like a like african-american like lift operator guard guy is like um letting eric roberts down to like in you know he's got like a washing cart or whatever and the guy's about to start clocking what's going on and then he distracts him with a stack of pornography and he's like oh you like that white ass don't you crazy that's i think it's got a real uh pulpy sort of it feels like the film was uh, basically marketed to, you know, Alaskan oil rig workers. I've got to say, it's Canon Films, right? Golden and Globus, who ran the 80s. I mean, they did so many huge sort of independent productions or whatever for these kind of like action exploitation films. I feel like there probably would have been an appetite for this sort of material. The end is probably the most divisive part of it. Let's talk about, the, talk about the tonal it? shift yeah. that happens about two thirds the, of the way um, through the film. Okay, so the train is headed for, there's like a savage bend on the track. And there's like a massive chemical plant right after that bend. Very bad, like train track planning, I'm sure. But the train is going too fast. It can't stop. They can't stop the train. And it's going to hit this massive chemical thing, cause a massive explosion. And then when they realize that's going to happen, they're like squabbling for a couple of minutes over like, oh, what the hell do we do? And then this like depression sets in where they all just go completely silent and they're just like staring at each other. It's like the scene in Stalker when they like have a nap once they're in the zone, you know, it's proper like desolate. And they're just like, they can't face it. And then from that from that moment on, the film takes this completely different tone. And it has been like, I thought it had been really banal and like awful. And like, I thought, for example, Rebecca De Mornay's character turning up was like a true breath of fresh air because the other two characters were so unpleasant. Yeah, but I mean, she was still ill-used, but that's But I'm just saying her I'm just saying the acting style was like... I'm just saying, like, the character was just like, it was nice because it was unpleasant. I didn't didn't feel that... um, this emotional shift or really you didn't feel it you didn't feel it saying when it just no. all went I mean it's a super I loud think, like, um, kinetic film and then you just like got silence and they're just heading for like nuclear apocalypse or whatever yeah yeah. I, d- I don't know if I really felt the tonal shift either because it feels like there's an John, inevitability John to their character yeah from from the beginning he set out to to die and die free no matter what I mean the only sort of shift of, of of sympathy that that you have at all is he cares enough to go back and and unhook uh it's not about that it's not about the the sympathy it's just about before that even that the unhooking happens it's just this like crazy mood that sets in when they realize they're all like headed for this like thing and then after that like all the decisions made have like completely different man the I... music stops like you know the camera the editing slows down like i thought like everything about the film basically changed Leading really? to this like crazy climax with the guy pulling up on the 
Mm. Yeah, doing the Jesus pose and like going on through. Like they don't fetishize the destruction at the end at all. You don't even see it, but you know it's happening, which is admirable for a film which signposts its action so relentlessly. Yeah, you never see the train um, stop, the runaway train. <laughs> Just in terms of like the action on the train, yeah. like it's such a huge contrast to the general, where like <laughs> this the train is like so incidental. And the way they interact with it, maybe it's because it's all like icy and like perilous outside, and it's literally just a device to have them contained and like plummeting towards something, well, think... rather than being like an actual like locomotive with like locomotive properties or whatever. It's using this train as this vessel to a sort of destination of destiny. Yeah, it's stupid because the film for a train film, the first forty minutes, you got no idea there's going to be a train in this film. Like, there's no indication of that i feel like we're only teasing out these like philosophical elements because we no it's not a philosophical because we have because we're like interrogating the plot of the film and like obviously it does take a turn i don't feel like it's successful tonally but in terms of the story like there there is some sort of shift it's a mad film yeah it's very 80s in terms of the music and the editing (sighs) and everything like the acting the acting dialogue yeah oh my god any other things you guys want to say about oh, Runaway Train? I quite liked a lot of the control room scenes. Yeah. I've been in signal boxes and, you know, they look they look just like that. Um, I especially, you know, like the line of, uh, well, you just spent four million on this new signaling system, which is the oldest sort of signaling that um, I operate on now. And you can't even wow. uh, stop a train and stuff. And I just, uh, I just thought it was an interesting um, transition because those lines would have just been come over from like a token operation or um, phone operation where, you know, the driver just comes in and gets authority literally through a phone to proceed and stuff like that um so it was it was a cool behind the scenes uh little take of um the control room and how signaling works and all those diagrams and the decisions that controllers have to make just amped up to you know the, the nth level um but yeah there, there was some realism uh within those control room scenes there was the one bit with um it's like a moment of like real heightened tension where um, in the control room, they make the decision to try and derail the train. Mm. So they get on the phone to like old man Winter sitting in his four by four, who's like, it's his job to like manually work, change the, track, work, work the, the ground track. points. Yeah. 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 And then he does it, and then they realize someone's on the train. So he has to undo it. It's interesting to see these like. Yeah, 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 yeah. To see, to, like, to see uh, the, the, the decisions they're making off a little. Uh, um, LED dot matrix uh, yeah. on a wall, and, and stuff. then on the other side, you've got your boy on the yeah. walk on the walkie-talkie, who's like got to like yeah, put yeah, on yeah, the yeah, bear yeah, claw yeah. and like go out there and do the crank. Like, mm, mm, mm. The control room scenes are like the most political, and like, and yeah, yeah, the first uh, yeah the first hour of the control room scenes, uh, yeah, were really uh, great operationally sort of, uh, until it became less about the operations and more about the ego struggle between the control room operator and the fucking insane prison owner. I forget his name. Uh, the, the, the guy who gives the control room operator a fucking slushy in the toilet. Like, (laughs) and the control room is also the logical site of, uh, gratuitous product placement. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Smooth that's, every uh, time. Bit mad how the Eric Roberts character is a paedophile. 
or a statutory rapist. Hey and man, I'm not a rapist. She was 15. It's <laughs> oh, crazy, man. Like, he's like the character fuck. you're spending the whole <laughs> film with. I mean, when you can understand what he's saying, it's bollocks or whatever. It's no, but he's like the everyman, isn't he? I guess and so. then And then the, um, John Voight's character is like the... The criminal who's like too old yeah, to change, John, yeah, John but Eric Voigt Roberts is, is like the hardened criminal, and he's he's the jammy guy who just went a little bit wrong in his youth, and he's not he's not ready to die, but he's also just a dumb asshole. They could have given him a bit of smarts, endeared him a bit more to the audience. Uh, I hated all the characters in this film. Yeah, me yeah. Too. apart from Record Warning, me which too. is it out. To be honest, Runaway Train though, as a train driver film. There's, the train driver is a non-entity, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, dies yeah, at the beginning but... and then there's no train driver. <laughs> so that's uh, yeah. totally absurd. That, that, that's the whole point of it. So, um, uh, once again, the moral of this movie is trains need drivers. Don't forget it. Don't take the DLR. Nice. <laughs> Sweet. listening to film greys going loco with our mate who's a train driver we've uh metropolitan public transport not these kind of epic cross-country rail journeys that we've seen in the general or nightmare yeah there's a real difference between uh yeah traversing the country and just everything that happens on your daily commute back and forth in the in the underbelly or overbelly of the city perfect time to talk about the 2008 British comedy flop classic Three and Out starring Mackenzie Crook yeah Colmini. so I guess this is a bet noir for tube drivers across the city really. tube tube drivers <laughs> were actually uh, so upset that they uh, they picketed the premiere of the film to be fair to them on artistic grounds to be fair to the movie, <laughs> they had not that they had not seen the movie as of yet. So uh, you know, I wasn't trying to join in that protest, but after I did see the film, uh, yeah, I was I, w- I was not impressed. The, the the worst thing about it is when people find out what I do, a good proportion of them, the first thing they ask me about is the three and out rule, which is a completely fictional rule, which is a plot device for this film which basically says that if a driver has three suicides in a month you know they're paid out for the rest of their life uh that rule does not exist in any respect and no driver who has a suicide will be driving you know within um, about a month but you know if you have two a few weeks apart from each other, you're going to be off six, eight months. You're like, it's, it's just a, a complete impossibility and everybody seems to believe it. So talking about the general as being like an improper subject for a comedy, this is an incredibly crass 
premise yeah. for a, a lightweight like sex lives of the potato men style and british it, comedy I, I mean I, I think it just does a disservice to all the different groups of people that it represents yeah, i mean the suicidal it, people the, get the, a bad the suicidal people are represented terribly mackenzie crook is is it's not, not a good representation he's of, no jean gabin just just a real sort of uh disservice to the culture of the industry i'd say and operationally very very poor there's a bit of cab action uh but not nearly enough um and yeah when when you're watching these train films about train drivers you know um i think that it could have done a much better job of representing the day-to-day uh life of a train driver maybe like some of the uh what why he was feeling some of the monotony just did not uh did not delve into to any of the subjects in in any way but uh, a like surface humor level and i think it's a trash film fair enough i mean good luck to them remaking it with all computerized you know in the future in the automation age they won't be able to remake it you know? but yeah i mean pff, we just exhumed three and out just to bury it again i guess yeah worst worst train film don't don't watch it however another good film about metropolitan public transport is the taking of Pelham 123, there's the classic version and there's the, the remake, which we'll talk about a bit later. But it's a film that involves a few criminals played by like Robert Shaw and that. They hijack a New York subway car. They shoot the driver pretty early on, yeah. sadly. Stop the train and hold everyone in the, in the car to hostage. The original one's really interesting because it's all about like the sociological, it's not all about it. Yeah, but... what are the politics of these films? Like, I haven't seen <clears> this. This is an interesting one. What's the deal? This is an interesting one because the first one, at least, depicts New York in the 70s on the subway when the subway was like pretty nasty, you know. And there's just all these people just like yeah, really don't want to be. Yeah, the subway was in, in serious debt. Uh at that time um and it was just really decrepit falling apart not to mention the city was in bankruptcy at the time Wait, um, so that's the, a big that's a big thing the, right hijackers doing that okay well, they're, they're, they're literally they're literally taking a train car of people putting it in a siding and saying we're gonna kill all of them unless we get a million dollars cash and, so the, and the city it, can't even afford that in the original one you know the mayor's like i've got a cold and i don't have a million dollars to give but it, it, well the, the 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 new york subway uh is is probably one of the um uh worst maintained sure. subways in the world uh still still going at the moment um so Go to New York if you really want to see genuine uh, sort of 1920s underground technology. I mean, the... the... (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, our tunnels are like Victorian or whatever. Yeah, 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 they are. But we've modernized our signaling systems in the way that New York hasn't. um, uh, The oldest line that we had going was the Metropolitan line. And they finally started refurbishing that in about uh, 2012 or so. So the Met line was using signals from the 1920s until about 2012. New York is still using... 1920 through 1950 signaling technology. So what's the implications of that? Are they just like, do they use it because it still works or do they use it? They use it because it's so expensive to upgrade it. Um, The implications of it is it's completely fail safe. It's more fail safe than 
digital automated systems mm-hmm. that they're bringing in today, which is like a real, if it ain't broke, don't fix it Great. sort of thing. Because when you say, oh, um, if you want to see like an antiquated rail signaling, like go to New York and it sounds like a bar, but like really you're saying it's a good thing. Mm. I mean, uh, just because of its age, it's it's really unreliable and it fails a lot. And a big problem um, that cities like New York and even London are having is um, when they're trying to maintain this, this signaling equipment from 1920s and stuff, people who are coming out of electronic engineering school are so beyond this technology um you know the london underground um at one point on the circle line they were trying to get um like 75 80 year old guys to come in on a daily rate to come out of retirement to to fix their antiquated signaling because no one yeah no one no one is trained up in it um anymore it's so hard to get young people to you know learn a pretty much obsolete technology so that's that that's why new york new york trains are delayed all the time because the signaling breaks all the time and it breaks all the time because it's really old i just want to say taking a pedal one two three the original one is really sick it's interesting for being like it takes place in a subway car and there's other stuff going on there's like car chases and like dramatic phone calls like most of it is about if a normal subway car in new york was held to hostage there's like people who are speaking spanish they don't understand what's going on someone translates for them there's like a prostitute yeah there's like, a real uh interesting cross-section of uh yeah 1970s new yorkers yeah. um I don't remember any uh, particularly um, poignant moments, but, you know, they're definitely... It's know, not about the poignant moments, though. It's yeah. not about the emotions at all. Like, very emotionless film. It's just stuff happening. You don't get any backstory for the characters. I mean, it's, like, very different to the remake that we're going to talk about later. But it is good as both, I guess, a film about being on the subway or the tube. Yeah, being on the subway and uh, sort of... Um, Exploit, exploiting uh, the technical um, knowledge of an ex-subway uh, worker really to wreak havoc because, you know, they hire this old subway train driver and, like, I think uh, technology-wise, the way the way they're doing things, it, it's all it's all fairly possible um, to, to have done it in that way, yeah. There is this question of the dead man switch that's, like, a big plot point in the last bit of the film when the train is, like, hurtling towards, like... You know, mm, and they've mm. they've got out, but the train's still going. And apparently, they said like, "Oh, that was the one thing that the MTA made them like put in the film was like a fictional construct, so that lunatics couldn't like watch the film and then just like be like, oh damn, I'm gonna do exactly that.' This because apparently the book is like incredibly instructional and oh, just like shit. teaches people Fuck. how to rob a train or whatever. Wow. But this film, they had to make like slight adjustments to the actual mechanisms of the New York subway so that people couldn't just go and watch it and then just be like, oh, I'm going to do that. That sounds cool. Oh, shit. I've got to, I've got to take another look at the cab shots in the, in, in the old one. Um, yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good. You're still listening to Film Grays. We're going to talk about Tony Scott's diptych ode to Denzel Washington and the railroads of North America with his remake of The Taking of Pelham 123. Why were his last two films both train action he was he was trying to say his last his last bits before you know he shuffled off the mortal coil and left this world behind he was like right i just got one more thing to say denzel washington two more things to say denzel washington is sick and if i edit these train sequences with 300 cuts a minute it's going to be really sick stay tuned You're still with us, and as the train of history comes rolling into the 21st century, we arrive at Tony Scott's 
last two films, a real tribute to the rails, I guess. We got the remake of the aforementioned Taking a Pelham 123 from 2009 and Unstoppable is operatic final film from 2010. Both of which uh, feature Denzel Washington. I, I, I believe um, in both movies it's uh, his last day on the job and he has an absolutely crazy uh, last day. Denzel Washington can run things from the control room or from the front of the cab. He's, uh, he's really an all-round uh, railroad man. Mm. <laughs> the remake of Taking a Pelham 123 is very different to the original in the style. It's probably got ten times the amount of edits in it. And it's also got a lot of sort of fluffy backstories, you know, calls to the wife and like financial crime conspiracy subplots that just instead of colouring the film they probably make it more grey. But it's it's basically the same. A, a tube train in New York that I guess looks the same as the tube train in the seventies version. Does he ask for a million in this one? He asked for well? ten million nice. in this one. That's, yeah, uh, the yeah. the subway train uh <laughs> that they use in the remake is the same one as uh, the one they used in the 70s. However, it was uh, made up to look like modern stock. The reason they did that is uh, modern stock works in multiple formations, so you can't take an individual car away. Right. And so for that whole plot element to work, the trains they used for filming were the uh, 1970s stock. Um, but... Uh, all done up in uh, that fresh aluminum uh, NYC classic subway uh, style. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they made a lot of really uh, weird changes. I don't quite understand. They moved the driving controls to the left side of the cab. I don't know <laughs> why they decided to do that. but they, um, Maybe they just inverted the... Yeah, maybe maybe they inverted it for for YouTube reasons. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's exactly it. In the original, they got a load of cool shots where you, it's shot on a diagonal, so you can see the front of the train, the cab, and you can also see all the passengers. And the character, there's like no characterization. I mean, there's more characterization, but there's, the characters are infinitely less interesting. John Travolta is awful, I think. Uh, yeah, John, John Travolta is is just your big beefy bad guy, and he's he's got the the evil goatee uh, as well. I think that's what I remember most: just his his big black goatee and his big hoop earring. You know, he's just up to no good. He's got some very bad, unmemorable lines, but he's also got a laptop with an internet connection, bringing us straight into the twenty first century because he is an ex banker who is trying to crash the economy by holding New York to ransom so that his gold futures can, like, skyrocket. Oh, right, it goes so much deeper than the 10 million, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, yeah. What's those bits? Like, how does he get from the the place that we were when we were going to go to Staten Island before we got shook to, like, 42nd Street <laughs> oh. in, seven, yeah. in seven minutes? Although it does have James Gandolfini as the mayor. He's really good. And it's got... Uh, ever-present John Turturro as, like, a stressed-out MTA officer. Uh, I, I can't really remember his role in the movie, but he does an excellent job of uh, just that 
bureaucratic middle level management man, man skinny man in a sweaty suit just uh you know running through the control room he's a stressful guy i mean john travolta kills someone because he has to speak to him as opposed to denzel washington so that brings denzel right back into the film um it's stupid and the differences between this film and the original are uh the stakes are just that much higher yeah but for what yeah. The original's way better, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've just um, what, what I really liked about the remake was uh, Denzel's character, and once again, uh, the control room scenes, which uh, similar to uh, Runaway Train, were very re- realistic, and it's just cool to get these, um, you know, shots of all of uh you know all the different track diagrams with the trains running around um and i liked uh denzel's uh whole uh from conductor to head of the mta and then disgraced again um sort of uh backstory so while the rest of the film was trash um i i really liked everything uh denzel had to do um in in the remake um i I thought he was a great addition to the story take this moment to shout out the I think it's finished now because they've caught up to his IMDB but the Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time podcast where they go through his filmography they do an episode about each should have consulted that before doing this episode but yeah shout out them guys he also puts it down in Unstoppable where he also plays a rail worker Unstoppable this is is the climax of this podcast come on is absolutely uh, like what's his role my favourite train film ever right yeah so in Unstoppable um, Denzel Washington uh Plays a train driver, last day on the job, of course. Uh, um, and uh, Too this, old for this shit. This is, this is act, it's actually completely based on a uh, true story, um, which is kind of the most amazing part of um, Unstoppable, because it's got one, one of the most outland, outlandish plots, but in 2004, in Ohio, through a whole host of um, technical reasons, um, be- basically, Dead Man Switch was disabled because the brake was on, the driver thought that he had engine braking on, you do that by putting the throttle to full with the engine brake switch on, however, the engine brake switch was in acceleration mode, so... In 2004, this train did actually escape the yard going um, 90 miles per hour. He got out to change a signal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He stepped out of the cab to uh, change a ground signal, and uh, the train just accelerated at a rate that that he couldn't pick up. Um, And this is shown really, really well at the beginning of Unstoppable. Uh, The the actor who plays uh, the poor driver, you'll uh, recognize him as... um, Randy from My Name Is Earl. Oh I've yeah, got that's no right. idea what his name is, Ethan but he's Supley. yeah, he's like, wow, he he he's got through. a little uh, thir- <laughs> thirty seconds of uh, you know just just creating the impending disaster. And what's amazing about Unstoppable is it's such an outlandish film with such an outlandish plot, and with a few exceptions 
pretty much that the 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 plot follows what happens in real life right. in real life um to um like uh i think in unstoppable you know there's more tension about getting him on the right line and getting him in front and whatever but in real life what did happen was um two locomotive drivers uh just started driving on the track from a siding in front of the train, um, slowed down so that the uh, runaway train caught, caught up to them, and uh, one of these drivers jumped in the back of the cab and um, stopped the train using the emergency brake using the controls. So that's a completely true story. It happened in Ohio in 2004, um, and Unstoppable... I don't. There's no guided by voices on the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> it's it, 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 it's definitely a rural setting. I think. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the a rural like, sort of un, undefined setting, I believe. Um, but it, it's completely based um, off of the CSX eight 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 incident, uh, which did happen in Ohio. And what's just amazing is you've got this ridiculous plot and about 90% of it really happened. Um, thanks to the, uh, fantastic actions of, um, CSX employees, uh, in the Ohio area. So big thanks to them for inspiring this, um, incredible, uh, train driving film in, in, in my opinion. I mean, I think it's, uh, as, as opposed to something like three and out, it's, um, it's a great representation of what can go wrong on the railway and uh, how how someone who really uh, has someone who exceptionally cares about their job, um, how they can uh, go out of the way to save the day um, and make sure that trains have drivers because trains need drivers. I guess it's a beautiful social model in terms of this other guy who's part of a network is like going above and beyond to like yeah. take responsibility for this whole yeah interconnection yeah. of rail lines i mean i th i watched it again and that the the jump bit is fucking crazy like Wait, what gone? the bit when denzel washington gets onto the other train so he can stop oh, it like okay. that is crazy and like i don't know tony scott love him or hate him he developed a mastery of this uh kind of, from top gun onwards you know cinematically is it similar to his version of um taking a pedal yeah but it's outdoors instead of indoors in it so it's more kind of more cool but i mean the editing is the same the the shot the compositions are the same yeah but you can't see anything because it's just go like editing hurtling past but it's intense you know yeah i wish i'd seen it in the sun cinema maybe i did see it in the cinema but if i did i can't remember it sadly but, I mean, it was pretty fucking thrilling, to be honest. And I can understand why it would make a train driver cry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, um, I mean, yeah, really, uh, it, it really tore me up to see, uh, to see Denzel uh, save the day. And, I mean, uh, obviously, in the movie, I think the stakes were were a little bit higher. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the train was hurtling towards... Some Primary disastrous, school. yeah, 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 yeah. Hurtling towards the the primary school nuclear power plant local <laughs> complex, you know. Um, so you know, there, there there's a bit of artistic license there, but um, it's 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 a really 
great uh, retelling of um, a true incident when um, train drivers really went uh, above and beyond uh, to uh, save all the kids going to school next to the nuclear power plants, you know? And Buster Keaton, all he wanted was his girl back and his train back. <laughs> so, if anything, the stunts and the train driving became less impressive, but the... I, I, I just... I, I, I can't... I can't knock Buster Keaton and his human coupler move. Mm. I mean, he mm. was like, you, 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 you can't. And he literally did you, that. You can't. Literally. He, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you know, whatever Denzel did on screen, Buster Keaton was 100% really in there, you yeah. know. Um, Next up, Denzel in the remake of The General. Oh, <laughs> as the Confederate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need. Maybe our podcast can achieve that. Nothing else. I, I, I think, uh, I think from all the movies that we've discussed, and I think uh, Denzel, uh, Denzel plays a, a, a pilot in in flight as well. Denzel has. Um, proved that uh he he really is a, a a public transit uh driving legend whether it's trains planes or or whatever else and um yeah i i, I really hope we can get uh we can get this remake of the general underway i think um i think it'd be a box office success uh, just just across the world it would almost certainly be more successful than the original let's round it up by just talking about some films that are set on trains even if train drivers aren't necessarily yeah great so you've got uh yeah you've got films like um snowpiercer which uh the, the the train is a very um unimportant um Oh, I'd argue that it's central, actually, but not well. As, it's uh, yeah, it's central, but not as not not in terms of an operational um, perspective. It's it like like the, the train is supposed to represent something further. The train represents, well, represents an entire society of order where people travel through the train as like a sort of stratification they and don't it's like a journey through the train it's like class warfare and they i don't mean, care about how the train operates everyone's just on the train and it's just driving and that's that's just it's also fact. when you when you like I break mean, it down if you imagine it like there's t- points where like they're walking through they go through like primary schools and stuff on the train which just doesn't make sense like i don't i don't think there's like a walkway through the train like all the carriages are the walkways so yeah. it just like high rise. Well, it's, it's quite yeah, yeah, great yeah. use of uh, of using a train as a in in, in a really symbolistic way uh, to I yeah, mean, it's like a different... Marxist um, allegory. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's like a, I think it's based on a French comic, mm. South Korean film, Bong Joon Ho's yeah, first English speaking film. Yeah, I want to say yeah. I actually love that film. It's really good. I'm looking forward to rewatching it. Actually, I should have done before this podcast. That is probably very fun in the cinema because it really is like a, you know, it's like a visually stunning film. Actually, huge flop when it came out though. No one gave a fuck yeah, about Snowpiercer. I think it had like a digital release. I don't think it got released in the UK <laughs> in 
in cinemas. That and then uh, you've got um, well, you've got the Darjeeling uh, Limited as well. Good point. Right, which... That's the only Wes Anderson film I haven't seen. Thanks really, <laughs> the only one. Give it a miss, mate. Oh, you've yeah. you've, you've you've got to see it. Um, what do you what? like it? Uh, well, yeah, I I really really like it. It's not um. It's not too much. It, 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 you know, it's it's more about these three uh, brothers and you know the journey that they're taking through India. But the you've medium... got some like old, old like locomotive hardware, though, don't you? Oh, yeah. you've got yeah. So. There's um in in terms of uh, locomotives and operational stuff, you don't see much. You mostly see um, interiors. But in terms of the actual passenger carriages, it's just a beautiful um representation of um like uh, I, I think sort of the the communities that uh you you can form on these ridiculously uh long uh train rides and i mean it, it, it's a train that i'd certainly love to ride wes anderson interior designed uh coaching stock all that um, louis vuitton luggage and stuff yeah <laughs> like train interiors have always been we haven't really spoken about films with scenes set on trains where these like traditional train interiors are like really central to the about the, the like, obscure object of desire. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So like um, that's like stories within stories, but the the narrative is being told um, like to a carriage full of strangers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are like, I mean, there are so many, like some like at heart, like That's, the I train sequence isn't that a brilliant. We all have this vision of like old school train interiors, like wood panelled, like really like. Well, and it, it, like, it's it's pretty, it's, you, you know, it's pretty true. I I, I remember just even taking. Um, you know, suburban railways in London in 2004, the old connects like slam door trains. And, um, they like, uh, they, it was, you know, there was graffiti everywhere and stuff, but you were, you, you had your own section and you sat in a closed section with about six other people with, you know, your legs about a foot apart from each other. So it's, um, I, I think a train can be a pretty, uh, Good plot device for inside number nine, Lucky Shit. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got yeah, you've got these six characters who don't know each other within this tiny compartmentalized space. I guess like uh, Runaway space. Train, it's like a bottle. Episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of characters. In a confined space, that they have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've definitely got a yeah. You've definitely got a lot of films and like this Inside Number Nine episode where the 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 running of the train isn't central to the plot at all, but it it it's just relies on the fact that you you've got uh two, three, six people in this enclosed space that are going to be together for you know six eight hours or uh, whatever. I mean, even North by Northwest. I was going to um, say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another, Do you want to talk about that? Another um, English, even maybe even greater than Tony Scott as a British filmmaker who made a lot of his work in the US, who also loved trains. I mean, Hitchcock used that shit all the time. We got The Lady Vanishes, Thirty Nine Steps has long ass train sequence. Um, Strangers on a train probably has less train stuff than The Lady Vanishes or Thirty Nine Steps, but that first setting on the train is banging and then there's also north by northwest as you said which uses probably the most famous use of a train in cinema 
but it's a, as a sort of like Freudian sexual metaphor when Eva Marie Saints was like, do you want to come into my cabin? And he's like, and you she's like, my book's sh- really boring. And then <laughs> <laughs> You've just got the shot of the train entering the tunnel mm. after that. It's very... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's important, you know. Yeah, it's you very illustrative. Yeah. Foxtrot uniform, Charlie Keeler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, we got other ones as well. I want to talk about Clint... 1517 to Paris. Oh my god, yeah, That's I haven't a, seen this, but you had quite a glowing reception of fucking, it. <laughs> fucking loved it. I mean, it's a film named after a train journey, which maybe, I guess, Train to Busan also does that. But, I mean, only 10 minutes of it takes place on a train. I mean, if I'd start describing this film, you're going you're gonna to be like, no way, no way. But it's true. But it's mostly just some Americans on holiday. The real people who uh, averted a terrorist attack on a train to Paris that departed at 1517 from like Amsterdam or something like that. I don't know. can't remember where it left from. Um, it cut and it features the real people who actually did it. It's a mad film. I've got to say, I thought it looked terrible and like a bizarre project and like clearly an ideological project. There is clear. no film. Is it didactic or like what's the... No, it's not really didactic. It's, more, it's like... Are they heroic figures or are they like... They're heroic I mean, figures, they are, but they, they are, are like meathead Americans who are like going around Rome, be like, "This is so crazy. We're in Europe, man. Like, oh, I just got a feeling like something really mad is about to happen to us." But that's a cool film, even though you know the train stuff isn't that big of a deal. Fifteen seven. I'll, I'll have to put that on uh, my uh, my to watch list. I, I mean, you said most of, of it is them like hanging out in like coffee shops or like. Parisian, like, or like their, or their like stories <laughs> or growing up back home. Oh my god, it sounds so shit. But the train stuff like... is really well directed, man. Like, okay. so well directed. Better directed than the Tony Scott stuff. Better than well, the Commuter. The uh, yeah, the 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 only other great great film that that I can think of is it, it, it's got uh no no train stuff at all but uh that french film that that the he- la haine la 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 haine and la la haine and it's uh it's it's a whole movie based off uh you know these kids uh from the paris suburbs missing the last train of the night uh you've got this great shot of the train departing the station and you know they're jumping for it there's what there's another um, Parisian um, train scene that I'd like to invoke momentarily from uh, Code Unknown. The oh, that's film. such a good train scene! It's fucking <laughs> savage. Maybe that's my favorite film. scene in like 21st century cinema, man. Come on, that's a really good scene. <laughs> that's way better than taking a Pelham one, two, three. Um, I'm gonna shout out Titfield Thunderbolt, Elon Comedy. That's about a train, but we should have we should have watched that for this shit really, oh, but shit. we didn't. When's that from? Like the thirties, fifties, I think. And Train to Busan, haven't seen it. But yeah, I mean, zombie film set on a train, probably quite. Well, sick. Ultimately, there are so many. We, I feel like we've done a pretty good job trying to cover as many bases as possible. But trains are always have been and always will be central to the visual language of cinema. However, like, when yeah. they get when they get rid of the train drivers, it's the, going to be a you, 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 the, 
the the thing is, you know, they're if they're trying the here and there to get rid of the train drivers, but it's just becoming ultimately clear that trains need drivers. Maybe not to everybody, but um, I think that's going to be uh, the pervading message from the unions and from railway companies yeah, and in, from in the coming podcast. century. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Part automation. I want that universal basic income, but I don't want to lose my human train drivers. Ultimately, there's is that too much be, to There's ask? always going to be a level of automation, but rationality has lit economic rationality has limits and um you know there needs to be a human touch in some things you couldn't have a computer playing buster keaton in the general you couldn't have a computer playing denzel just the uh, yeah just the most economic (laughs) and yeah 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 sorry (laughs) on behalf of the film gray's podcast darrell Thanks for being our first guest. Man, thanks for having me so much, guys. Thank you, Darrell. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Oh, and... well, you guys uh, got to come along on for, for a train ride yeah. sometime. Train ride, okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah let's it. do it. <laughs> thanks, thanks for listening. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. I'm Darrell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cheers. You may disembark now. Don't leave any of your log- belongings behind. <laughs> My words are all
turning once more towards the mate and the trio of trains twixt my work and my play. There's a trio of trains twixt my work and my play. Also, 